Well, good evening, men. It is good to have this opportunity once again to to examine doctrine and and to examine especially the the doctrines that are so close to us, the doctrine of salvation and its many different components. And this evening, what we are going to look at is the doctrine of spiritual gifts. And often in many theological textbooks, this is left to a different area, put outside of the realm of soteriology, put outside of the topic of salvation. But in our study this evening, I hope that you will recognize along with me that this belongs together with soteriology. It belongs together with the doctrine of salvation. It is one of the components, one of the riches that we have as part of the redemption God has given to us. Well, as we begin, I want to remind you of our study last week. Last week, we looked at the baptism indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit, and we looked at how those are are interrelated components of this wonderful plan of salvation, that we have been baptized into the Spirit. We have now the gift of the Holy Spirit as a permanent indwelling, and we also, as we as we uh, as, as we walk according to the rule of God's word, we have the Holy Spirit's permeating influence in our lives. That's what we looked at last week. And directly related to the Spirit's baptism and directly related to our immersion into the Holy Spirit, directly related to our tasting of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, We have this doctrine of spiritual gifting. We have this reality where now we, as those who have been baptized into the Spirit, as those who are indwelt by the Spirit, now become partakers with God in his plan of redemption, particularly as it relates to the preaching of the gospel to the lost and the edification of those who believe. It is this aspect of salvation, the doctrine of spiritual gifting that joins us together with God into this plan, whereby we become his instruments as, as, as we now are used as tools to bring about the, the conversion of sinners and the edification of those who believe. This new enablement that comes from our Uh, immersion into the Holy Spirit and his indwelling in us, this new enablement is called spiritual gifting, is the, is the, the wonderful reality, the truth that God has given to us, to all believers, spiritual abilities that are consistent with this plan of salvation. One text that's so helpful to look at as a, as an introduction to this topic is found in Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, we find these words from the Apostle Paul. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, what Paul does here is he takes the wording from Psalm 68, a psalm in which David celebrates God's conquest of of the enemies of Israel, the Jebusites living in the city of Jerusalem. David celebrates that conquest. And 
Paul uses that terminology to describe what to describe an element of redemption in the same way that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, when a a victorious king would return to his state, he would bring with him these these captives and he would put them on a parade and and lead them through the, the city as a spectacle of the king's power. And then the king would take the bounty all the spoils of of his victory, and he would distribute them to the citizens of his kingdom. Well, Paul takes that concept and he, he takes it from Psalm 68 and he uses it to describe redemption. Uh, you have this idea of, of, of Christ being the one who has accomplished redemption for us. He is the victorious conqueror. And now he, as part of his victorious reign, He gives the spoils to his citizens. And that is us. That is, that is us. We are these citizens of his kingdom. And as part of his redemptive plan, as part of his accomplishment, he gives us spiritual gifts. Now, on the one hand, this topic should be carefully studied and esteemed by all believers. It's interesting to note that there's more instruction about spiritual gifts than there is about some of the other more well-known components of our salvation. And if we would look at some of these texts, let me give you four texts in particular that provide instruction on this topic. We would look at texts like Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 and 14, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16, and 1 Peter 4, verses 10 to 11. And and the fact that we should know about these gifts is even mentioned by Paul as he exhorts the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, he exhorts the Corinthians with these words. He says this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Spirit, the, the topic of spiritual gifts isn't something that we must flee from. It is not something about which we can remain ignorant. God has given us revelation in his word that must inform our understanding and lead us to the implementation of these gifts. Yet at the same time, despite the instruction that we have, there are few areas where, there, where we find more debate among Christians than, among, than in this area of spiritual gifts. John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew stated this way, few areas of doctrine are more controversial or confused in the church today than spiritual gifts. Such was also true in the first century, at least in Corinth, end quote. In other words, they're they're pointing to the reality that just like in Corinth, we, we find a lot of misunderstanding and abuse and ignorance of the spiritual gifts today. Just like in Corinth where there was chaos and selfishness and pride, so also today in the exercise of spiritual abilities that God has given to all true believers, we find a a great degree of ignorance, a great degree of pride, and a great degree of malpractice. Well, our desire this evening is is to correct that at least to some degree. And certainly, as I said, this topic is immense. We could spend several weeks looking at the topic of of spiritual gifts. We don't have that much time. We're going to condense it into our hour that we have together this evening. So what I want to do this evening is to provide a summary 
And I don't want to be too simplistic. I don't want to give the idea that this is just a, a, a very simple topic. It isn't. The, the level of controversy that exists does indicate the complexity of this, of this doctrine. Nonetheless, I, I want to give a, an overview, a bird's eye perspective. I want to provide a survey so that you at least understand the basics of the discussion and, and the key elements. And then after that, you can go further in your own study of God's word over this particular topic. So let's begin with the key terms and their definition, the key terms and their, their definitions. And we're going to look at three terms that are related to the topic of spiritual gifts. We're going to look at the, the, the concept of spiritual gift itself. What is a spiritual gift biblically defined? Secondly, we're going to look at the term continuationist. And third, we're going to look at the term cessationist or continuationism and cessationism. And undoubtedly, you've heard these terms before as theologians or as preachers have, have discussed this topic. They'll talk about spiritual gifts. They'll talk about continu- the continuationist position, and they'll talk about the cessationist position. And so I want to I take time this evening to define those carefully, and hopefully that will help in your own study of this topic. Let's look first at the, the, the concept of spiritual gift. What is a spiritual gift biblically defined? Well, there are several Greek words that are used in the New Testament to describe a spiritual gift. One of the terms, and it's perhaps the most well-known term that is used to describe spiritual gifts, is the term charis and its related term charisma. Charis and charisma. Now, undoubtedly, with that second term in particular, you've probably heard the similarity, charisma and charisma, or charisma and charismatic. That term charismatic certainly has a relationship to these terms, and we'll talk about that more a little bit later on in our session. But I want you to note, first of all, these two terms, they're interrelated, the same root, the term charis and charisma. Both these terms have the idea of grace. Both these terms communicate the idea of a bestowed favor, something that isn't merited, something that isn't earned. And so if we go back to Ephesians 4 verse 7, we read these words. Verse 7 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. But to each one of us, grace, that is, charis, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, this term grace here is not a reference, properly speaking, to the gift of salvation, although that is grace as well. And we, we see this term charis used to describe salvation and even used to describe the Holy Spirit in other texts. But what Paul is talking about here is the, the topic of spiritual gifts. To each one of us, grace. To each one of us, gifts. Or a gift was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, we find both of these related terms. Paul says there, since we have gifts, there is the Greek word charisma. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace There's our term charis, according to the grace given to us. 
Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So notice Paul's use of this term to describe spiritual gifts, and it has a very important emphasis. Unlike how we often think of when, unlike how what we often think of when we hear the term charismatic or charisma today, in the original context, that term related to grace. It emphasized something that was granted or bestowed completely apart from merit or worthiness. It was something that was graced in the same way that salvation is a gift and in the same way that the Holy Spirit is a gift. So also are these spiritual abilities. That's Paul's emphasis when he uses this term or these related terms, charis and charisma. A second term that is used to describe spiritual gifts in the New Testament is the term pneumatikos, pneumatikos. And this word pneumatikos, probably you can recognize the, uh, the, the root word pneuma here, which refers to spirit. Pneumatikos is, is used to refer to something related to the inner life. Not to the natural or material body, but to the inner life, to the spirit. Or even in a more formal sense, it was used to refer to something pertaining to the Holy Spirit. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, Paul begins the discussion to the Corinthian church on this topic of spiritual gifts with these words. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, pneumaticas, concerning spiritual gifts. I do not want you to be unaware. The emphasis here is on the spiritual, on the non-natural, or you could even say on the supernatural nature of these abilities. That when Paul is talking about these things, he's not talking about the, the, the natural abilities that mark all mankind or the natural abilities that you have from birth. No, he is talking about the, the, the abilities that come specifically related to your new spiritual life, to the fact that the Holy Spirit is now indwelling in you. If we would look at Ephesians chapter 2, for example, we would read that the, believer, the unbeliever is dead. The unbeliever is dead spiritually. He has no spiritual vitality. But the spiritual man, the one who has been regenerated, he now is alive. He has been made to drink of the spirit. And as such, he has these things pertaining to the spirit. A third term that's used to describe spiritual gifts is the term merismos. Merismos. And it is the term that emphasizes distribution. Distribution. And so, for example, we find this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, where the writer of Hebrews says this, that God also testified with them, the the ones who proclaimed the apostolic witness, the ones who proclaimed the gospel. And so the writer says, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit According to his own will. Here, with this term merismos, the emphasis is on divine or sovereign distribution. In other words, these gifts are not received according to human decision. They're not sought and received according to human will. They are distributed to those who receive them. And that distributor is 
God himself. There is a fourth term that is used to describe spiritual gifts, and it's the word doma. It's used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, the text that immediately follows that verse that we already quoted out of Ephesians. And it really comprises a citation from Psalm 68, where, where the Apostle Paul cites that psalm, and, and, and he alters the wording just a little bit to fit his purpose here. And he says this, Therefore it says, that, that is the Scripture, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. There's our word, our Greek word, doma. And that word there emphasizes this expression of blessing. A gift is an expression of goodwill, an expression of blessing. So when we take these four terms and we we pull them all together, we can begin with an initial understanding of the, topical, the, the topic of spiritual gifts this way. Spiritual gifts are unmerited favor. They pertain to spiritual life or life of the spirit. They are sovereignly distributed and they are expressions of goodwill. They are expressions of blessing. Now, those are the, the root ideas behind our general category of spiritual gifts. Now, if we would go further, and we don't have the time to get into a lengthy exposition, but if we would go further into those four key texts that I referred to at the beginning that describe spiritual gifts, we could then attach these four ideas, these four root concepts to a larger theology of spiritual gifts and come up with a more comprehensive definition. And I want to give you uh, two comprehensive definitions as well. One is a, a simple one and one is more detailed. A simple one is given by Thomas Schreiner in his book, Spiritual Gifts. He defines the spiritual gift or spiritual gifts as follows. Quote, I would define spiritual gifts as gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed for the edification of the church. Let me read that again. I would define spiritual gifts as gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed for the edification of the church. Now, a little bit more of a, of a detailed definition given by MacArthur and Mayhew in their textbook, Biblical Doctrine, page 800. They define spiritual gifts in this way. Quote, as all believers, without exception, are baptized with the Spirit at the moment of conversion, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, they all, without exception, receive supernatural endowments for service within the church and according to the Spirit's sovereign prerogative. These spiritual gifts are not limited to only a select group of Christians. Since all believers are supernaturally gifted, they are all obligated to exercise their giftedness in ministry to others, end quote. So as MacArthur and Mayhew, Mayhew point out, and we're going we're gonna to deal with this in a little bit more detail a little bit later on in our session, they point out that all believers possess spiritual gifts. All believers possess spiritual gifts from the moment they are baptized into the Spirit. 
From the moment they are made to drink of the Spirit. From the moment the Spirit comes to indwell within them. And these gifts have to do with enablement. These gifts have to do with abilities. Abilities that are consistent with, that pertain to God's redemptive work. And these enablements, these abilities are connected specifically to the, to the, the, the work of evangelism and preaching the gospel to the lost, testifying to the work accomplished by Jesus Christ, and then applying that that truth, applying that message to those who do believe. So it has to do with both evangelism and edification. And as Mayhew and MacArthur emphasize here, these gifts take place not for the the sake of of one's own benefit. These are always others-oriented, never self-oriented. Now, we'll get to that in greater detail in just a few moments. But as we continue to develop our, our definition and understanding of spiritual gifts, there's a few other things to take notice. First of all, we can trace at least 18 gifts that are identified in the New Testament. And perhaps there are more, perhaps there are, uh, there are fewer, probably there are more. What we find is that there are no two gift lists in the New Testament that are alike. And so it's possible that there are even more gifts than are identified. But generally speaking, we can take these 18 gifts, or if there's more, we can take them and we can categorize them into two general categories. And the Apostle Peter does this in 1 Peter 4 when he says this in verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There you have that emphasis again on, on, on the diversity, on the variations of God's grace, not as it pertains to his giving of salvation or his giving of the spirit, but his giving of these spiritual abilities. Peter continues, verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So Peter takes these gifts, however many they are, and he puts them into two categories. There are gifts that have to do with speaking and gifts that have to do with serving. Gifts that are verbal in nature and gifts that are nonverbal. And both of them, both of these categories are part of this grace that God has given in various forms to all believers. But undoubtedly, the question is in your mind, do these gifts all continue today? Do members in my local church, in our local churches, do they possess all of the gifts that are described in the New Testament? And and that really is the center of, of the debate. That really is the focus of the division that occurs among many Christians. Some very well-meaning close friends even will, will disagree over these issues. And, and that leads us then to the next term that we need to identify and define. And that term is the term continuationism. The term continuationism. Well, what 
does it mean to be a continuationist? Well, generally speaking, this viewpoint, the viewpoint of continuationism, describes the view that all of the spiritual gifts, regardless of the category, speaking or serving, all spiritual gifts continue throughout the entirety of the church age. That's the view of continuationism. Continuationists believe that the spiritual gifts, all and every spiritual gift that is mentioned in the New Testament, as it is described as a part of the apostolic church, that each and every one of those gifts must continue for the duration of the church age. That's the view of continuationism. But having said that, I need to qualify it. Not all continuationists share the same perspective on how these gifts manifest themselves throughout church history and even today. You'll have basically three categories of continuationists. You'll have the the absolute continuationists, the absolute continuationists. They're really on the, the fringe of Christianity. They believe that all gifts continue in the very same manner today as they express themselves in the apostolic church. So the gift of apostleship, for example. You have these extreme charismatics today who would say that there are apostles existing today, ministering today, and even super apostles. I listened recently to a little clip from a super apostle who claims to have this gift of apostleship. Now, that view of absolute continuationism really marks more of the fringes of, uh, of Christianity, of, of Orthodox Christianity, and not all continuationists would agree with that viewpoint. You have a second perspective that we can define as moderate continuationists, moderate continuationists. These would be those who believe that almost all of the spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament continue today, or if they all do, they exist today in an inferior form than what they did when they existed in the apostolic church. Those are called moderate continuationists. They don't share the view of absolute continuationists who believe everything exists in the exact same way as it did during the time of the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. No, they take a different view. Some, they would say, some of these gifts have ceased, such as the gift of apostleship. Many today, many continuationists would admit that, would say there are not apostles in the church today. There are none as they existed in the New Testament church. Or they would say the apostles that do exist and the prophets that do exist are of an inferior categorization. Those are moderate continuationists. And then you have a third category, a third category called open but cautious. These are the non-committed. These are those who, who don't want to make any kind of definitive decision on the matter, who would say they're open to the view of, of the gifts, all of the gifts that exist in the apostolic church existing today, but they're cautious. It's really a position of non-committal. They don't want to take a stand anywhere, and so they just land on the fence. Well, really, the second and third perspectives here, 
the perspective of moderate continuationism and the open but cautious view we, we can really call inconsistent continuationism. Inconsistent continuationism. Or I would even say that you could call this a position of practical cessationism. In other words, most of the continuationists that you meet today are either inconsistent in their views or they will actually practice cessationism at the practical level of life in the local church. In other words, I would say this, the next time you meet a continuationist, press them on their claims and you will find that either they're in the fringe and they believe that apostles like Peter and Paul exist today, or they will say some gifts have ceased, but we still need to practice most of them, including prophecy and speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues and things of that nature. Or they will say that the gifts that exist today are just inferior to those gifts that existed in the apostolic time. Now, when they say that, they are being inconsistent. They are being inconsistent, even the open but cautious. And and I would even exhort you to do this, that if there are people in in cessationist churches today, and I'm going to deal with cessationism just a moment, if, there, if you're a member in a cessationist church and you have a moderate continuationist position or an open but cautious position, I want to put the onus on you. If you really believe that these special gifts of apostleship and prophecy are to be practiced today in every local church as they were practiced in the New Testament church, The onus is on you to go and find such a church and be part of that church. You see, in reality, the majority of continuationists are actually very inconsistent in their understanding, in their definitions, and in their practice. That leads us to the next term, the term cessationism. Cessationism. Well, continuationism is built off the term continue, and it's built off the idea that the, that, that all the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament, each and every one, all those spiritual gifts have to continue. That's the view of continuationism. But now you have this other position called cessationism, and it's built off the term to cease, to cease. From that term, we get the term cessationism. Now, I want to define cessationism carefully because there's a lot of misunderstanding related to cessationism. Cessationism is the term that is used to describe the view that some of the spiritual gifts ceased to operate after the first stage of church history, the stage of the apostolic church, and therefore, they are not in operation today. That's the view of cessationism. Let me again quote from MacArthur and Mayhew when they define this term as follows, quote, cessationism is the view that the sign gifts, the performing of miracles, gifts of healing, speaking in tongues, and the revelatory gifts, the reception and proclamation of new revelation from God, passed away when the foundation stage of the church ended. That's a definition from MacArthur and Mayhew. Now, when I give these definitions, you obviously see a new way of categorizing the gifts that I haven't mentioned before. 
Remember, earlier I, I mentioned the twofold categorization according to 1 Peter chapter 4, where Peter talks about gifts of speaking and gifts of service. Well, cessationism has another way of categorizing these gifts, and I want to de- devote your attention to that now for just a, a few moments. To understand the difference between the cessationist and the continuationist perspectives, whether you believe some gifts have ceased or whether you believe they all should be practiced, you have to understand this distinction that is made by cessationists regarding the classification of the gifts. So how does cessationism categorize the gifts? Well, if you look at this slide, you can see a chart here that groups the gifts into two main categories. You have the temporary or the miraculous gifts, what we could say are the extraordinary gifts. And then you have the permanent ministering gifts, the ordinary gifts. So cessationism says we can look at the scope of the New Testament. It's teaching on the, the purpose and function of the various gifts and put them into these two categories. First, the, you have the temporary miraculous gifts, the extraordinary gifts. And then second, you have the permanent gifts, the ministry gifts. And under each of these two general categories, you can also divide them into two other categories, two subcategories. So for example, under the temporary miraculous gifts, the extraordinary gifts, you have the subcategory of revelatory gifts and confirmatory gifts. Revelatory gifts would be those gifts that gave direct revelation from God. So the gift of apostleship or the gift of prophecy, the gift of utterances of wisdom or knowledge. Those gifts were intended to give direct revelation from God, and we call them extraordinary. They're miraculous. And the second subcategory underneath this heading is confirmatory gifts. That when we study scripture, we see that when you see the revelation take place, when God gives direct revelation, he often accompanies that revelation with confirmatory miracles. And that's what we find in the New Testament as well. That as new revelation is given, you have the accompanying gifts of miracles, of healings, and so on and so forth. That's the category of temporary miraculous gifts. They're extraordinary. And they're marked by revelatory gifts. Direct revelation from God is he gives his people new knowledge. And confirmatory gifts, these special miraculous gifts that showed that the new revelation being given was indeed from God. Then you have the second major category. As I mentioned, that's the category of the permanent ministering gifts, the gifts that don't pass away. They don't run their course. They are in existence from the birth of the church until its final rapture. You could take these permanent ministering gifts, these ordinary gifts, and separate them as well into two subcategories. The first subcategory under the permanent ministering gifts, you could call expositional gifts. 
expositional gifts. Why do we call them expositional? Well, they're not revelatory in nature. They don't reveal any new knowledge from God, but what they do do is take from that revealed word of God and exposit it, explain it, apply it to the current situation. Those are expositional gifts, and they would include such permanent gifts as the gift of teaching or the gift of exhortation. And then you have another subcategory of permanent ministering gifts, these ordinary gifts that exist throughout all of the church, and they are service gifts. These are the gifts that are not necessarily verbal in nature, but they minister to the body of Christ through such things as administration and mercy and giving. These are the service gifts. So if you see this categorization, you can, you can put all of the gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament into these categories. They fall either under the main heading of temporary miraculous gifts or the main heading of permanent ministry gifts. Moreover, if they belong to the temporary miraculous gifts, they are revelatory or confirmatory in nature. If they belong to the permanent ministering gifts, they are either expositional in nature or service-oriented. Let me now quote from a very famous American theologian who was a very uh, dedicated cessationist. His name is Jonathan Edwards, and he gives some helpful explanation here in a very good book called Charity and its fruits. Charity and its fruits. And in chapter 2 in particular, Jonathan Edwards lays forth his cessationist arguments. And I want to quote a little bit from him as he distinguishes between these two categories. He says this, quote, The extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. Notice his use of the term there, extraordinary. These are the The temporary ones, these are the miraculous ones. He says, the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, such as the gift of tongues, of miracles, of prophecy, etc., are called extraordinary because they are such as are not given in the ordinary course of God's providence. They are not bestowed in the way of God's ordinary providential dealing with his children but only in extraordinary occasions as they were bestowed on the prophets and apostles to enable them to reveal the mind and will of God before the canon of scripture was complete. And so on the primitive church in order to the founding and establishing of it in the world. But since the canon of the scripture has been completed and the Christian church fully founded and established these extraordinary gifts have ceased, end quote. So that is Jonathan Edwards' logic. That, that is how he understands the cessation of certain gifts, particularly the temporary miraculous gifts, these extraordinary gifts of revelation and confirmation. He then goes on to define the ordinary gifts. The ordinary gifts, he defines them this way, quote, but the ordinary gifts of the spirit are such as are continued to the church of God throughout all ages, 
such gifts as are granted in conviction and conversion, and such as appertain to the building up of the saints in holiness and comfort, end quote. So these ordinary gifts are the permanent gifts. They're the ministering gifts. And like I said, they are gifts of exposition and gifts of service. Gifts of explaining what God has already revealed in history, in his word, through the apostles and prophets. And gifts of applying that through service. Now, in response to this, there is often a common retort that is given against the cessationist position. And that common retort or or even a mischaracterization that is put forward by continuationists is to say this, cessationists, that is those who believe that certain gifts were temporary, cessationists believe that God no longer works in our world. You often hear that. That's often a a response to the cessationist argument when they say, hey, you are saying that that God is bound. My God is not in a box. You'll often hear that. But an important correction needs to be made here. Cessationism does not believe that God is in a box, that we place God in a box, and that he's no longer active in the world today. Not at all. Cessationists believe that Instead, that simply God does not do these extraordinary events, these extraordinary performances, these extraordinary acts through specific, permanently gifted members of the church today. In other words, cessationists still believe that God does extraordinary things. Even the salvation of a sinner, his repentance and faith in Christ is a miracle. And God does answer prayers, and God does do things today, as he always has has done, things that don't fit our current expectations. And you could call them miracles, or we could call them things that are just different from his normal work of providence. God's omnipotence and his imminence, his involvement in creation has not changed Throughout the course of history, he upholds and he orchestrates the movements of the smallest molecules as he always has. And he continues at certain times to do extraordinary things in creation. That's not the issue of the difference between cessationism and continuationism. Moreover, cessationists believe and assert that while the ordinary gifts are necessary for evangelism and edification, we would also say that the extraordinary gifts are not necessary. It is the ordinary gifts that are actually in the scope of church history, the, the ones that are most necessary for the ongoing life of the church. We already have the scriptures delivered to us. We already have the word of God. The canon has been closed. And so the gift of revelation has ceased. We don't need that anymore, but we certainly do need those with the gift of teaching, those with the gift of exhortation. So cessationists believe that those ordinary gifts are the ones that are necessary for edification, and those are the ones that we must focus on, whereas the extraordinary gifts are needed for a time. MacArthur and Mayhew also point out another important uh, fact of cessationism. 
Cessationism isn't an attempt to mute the Holy Spirit. It's not an attempt to, to somehow subdue or ignore the third person of our triune God. Rather, cessationism is motivated by a concern to honor the Holy Spirit by safeguarding a true understanding of his miraculous, miraculous work as portrayed in Scripture. That's said by MacArthur and Mayhew. Well, what are some arguments then that we would use in defense of cessationism? And again, I don't want to be simplistic here, but time requires me to give you a survey. Certainly, we could take several weeks to go through these arguments in detail and consider the counter-arguments that would be given by the, the continuationist. And I respect that. We just can't do that here. So in the time that we do have, let me give you the summary arguments for cessationism. I'm going to give you five. There are more. But let me give you five ones to focus on. Number one, cessationism is required by the purpose of the revelatory gifts. In other words, consider the reason why revelatory gifts were given in the first place. By their very nature, they assume a cessation. Revelatory gifts, such as the gift of apostleship and prophecy, do not merely repeat and rephrase previous revelation. No, these revelatory gifts reveal knowledge directly from God that was previously unknown and inaccessible. That's a true definition of a revelatory gift. They are words from God that were previously unknown, unaccessible, and their intent is to, to convey this knowledge to the church at the moment of its need. And that's why we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, these very important words where Paul talks about the church, the body of Christ, that has been built upon, now notice this, it's been built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets. Now, if you know anything about engineering, you cannot confuse the foundation for the entire structure. The foundation is crucial. Without it, you cannot have a structure. But the foundation is not synonymous with the structure that is built upon it. And that's the point that Paul is making. The church has been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In other words, that foundation has now been provided. It has been provided once and for all. And now the church is being expanded, is growing upon this foundation. So number one, in summary, cessationism is required by the purpose of the revelatory gifts. Secondly, number two, cessationism is required by the purpose of the confirmatory gifts. As soon as you acknowledge the fact that revelation, direct, inerrant, authoritative revelation from God has ceased, you immediately let the air out. You, you remove the necessity of the confirmatory gifts. Confirmatory gifts, the gifts of miracles and healings, as we see them in the New Testament, served to authenticate the messengers of revelation. They served to authenticate those who had the gifts of revelation. So why do you need confirmatory gifts? Confirmatory gifts are necessary to confirm those in extraordinary ways, to confirm those who are giving new 
words from God, inerrant, authoritative words from God. For example, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, speaking of the confirmatory gifts that accompanied the apostolic age, he said this, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 to 4, mentions the same idea when he says this, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, speaking of Jesus, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. That is speaking of the apostles, the affirmed delegates of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice this, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. In other words, the writer of Hebrews and and Paul make it very clear that these signs and miracles accompanied this special era in church history. The apostolic age, the foundation laying age of church history, when you had messengers of new revelation who, who spoke new, fresh, authoritative, inerrant words of God and had confirmation that they were speaking from the Lord by either the gifts that they possessed themselves or that others possessed these confirmatory gifts of miracle working, healing, and so forth. This reality leads Martin Luther to say this, the visible outpouring of the Holy Spirit was necessary to the establishment of the early church as were also the miracles that accompanied the gift of the Holy Ghost. Once the church had been established and properly advertised by these miracles, the visible appearance, what you could call the extraordinary miraculous gifts of the Holy Ghost ceased. B.B. Warfield says something similar when he says this, miracles do not appear on the page, on the pages of scripture vagrantly here and there and elsewhere indifferently without any assignable reason. They belong to revelation periods and appear only when God is speaking to his people through accredited messengers declaring his gracious purposes. Their abundant display in the apostolic church is the mark of the richness of the apostolic age in revelation. And when this revelation period closed, the period of miracle working had passed by also as a mere matter Of course, number three, a third argument, a summary argument for cessationism is this cessationism is required by the comparison of the gifts of the New Testament with the so-called miraculous gifts today. Now, it's interesting to note as you talk with continuationists, those who believe that all the gifts continue, they will either agree that there are no apostles today or they redefine the term apostle, apart from New Testament criteria. They will acknowledge the fact that either there are no apostles today, or they will say the apostles that exist today are inferior to the apostles of the New Testament. So automatically, they have become, in a sense, cessationist. That whatever apostleship exists today, it is not the continuation of the apostleship of Peter or Paul. They redefine apostle. 
continuationists, as they compare the gifts today with the gifts of the New Testament, also redefine the gift of prophecy. It's interesting to note that Wayne Grudem, for example, one of the most ardent proponents of the gift of prophecy today acknowledges the fact that you cannot compare the gift of prophecy today to the gift of prophecy that was experienced by the writers of the Old and the New Testaments. He says that the gift of prophecy is a, is a different kind of gift than the prophecy of the Old Testament. And he will acknowledge the fact that the prophecy that exists today allows for error. It contains error, can contain error, and has minimal authority. So they redefine the term prophecy. Continuationists also, when they compare the gifts of today to the gifts of the apostolic era, are forced to redefine the gift of tongues. They redefine the gift of tongues to refer to irrational utterances that have no similarities with known human languages today. But if you look at Acts chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, it was a known language. But Every continuationist that I've talked to and I've read will acknowledge and will argue that this gift of tongues that supposedly is being practiced today is not like the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost. They acknowledge that. And finally, continuationists redefine healings. When we read in the New Testament of the healings that were done, they were dramatic. They were visible. They were instantaneous. Think of the miracles of Jesus. Or think of the miracle of Paul raising Eutychus to life. Well, the healings that exist today are things like supposed foot lengthening. Or healing a sprained back. Or healing some kind of pulled muscle. These are the kinds of healings that supposedly demonstrate the gift of healing, but have no, no connection, no continuation with the healings of the New Testament. Let me read a quote from Wayne Grudem, who said this, again, speaking of prophecy, he said, no responsible charismatic believes that today's prophecy is infallible and inerrant revelation from God. He's a practical cessationist. He says elsewhere, there is almost uniform testimony from all sections of the charismatic movement that today's prophecy is impure and will contain elements which are not to be obeyed or trusted. Again, he is an inconsistent continuationist. He cannot, on the grounds of comparison, he cannot maintain his position. Thomas Schreiner then goes on to state this. If a continuationist says that the gifts are operating today, but are far inferior or to a far inferior degree than what we see in the New Testament, then they seem to be saying that the gifts aren't operating as they did in the New Testament, end quote. He recognizes the reality that, that there are very few true absolute continuationists today. They either redefine terminology or they have to admit an inferior kind of practice, and that is no continuation. Number four, cessationism is consistent 
with the testimony of the church after the apostolic era. We could look at the testimony of the early church, the early, uh, the, the early church fathers, the post-apostolic preachers and pastors and church leaders and how they viewed it and see a, a, a very clear picture of this view of cessationism. And then number five, cessationism is preferable to the serious problems created by continuationism today, evident in the charismatic movement. Now, in and of itself, this is not uh, an argument. Certainly, there are, there are proponents of every view that, that by their lives, by their practice, they disqualify the view that they propose that they advance. And and that can even happen with cessationism. You can have bad cessationists. But when you look at the, the, the charismatic movement, when you look at the continuationist movement, there are many, many serious problems. And those serious problems uh, are fruit of the convictions that are held. And I would say the mistaken convictions that they hold. Well, with that said, let's step back now and let's quickly in our remaining moments come up with a theology of spiritual gifts. I want to put aside the debate over cessationism and, and continuationism. I want to put that aside and, and just assume the position of cessationism and, and construct a theology of the gifts. And I want to give you a half dozen or more here important truths that we must affirm as it relates to spiritual gifting. Number one, when we talk about essential characteristics of gifting, the first one we must talk about is that spiritual gifts are imparted to all true believers. Spiritual gifts are imparted to all true believers. Paul emphasizes the fact that we were in one spirit baptized into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. And so if you are in that body, you have been immersed into the spirit and the spirit provides you now with that life. He provides you with the spiritual abilities, with the enablements that you need to be a partaker with God in this plan of redemption. And that's exciting That means that from the moment of conversion, the moment of your conversion, the spirit who dwells within you is enabling you, has gifted you to have a part, to play a role in God's greater redemptive plan. Now, he doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us for his glory and for our good. And that truth alone should encourage us that as soon as we are converted to Christ, we now become co-workers with him in this wonderful plan. And and we could look at it this way, that, that this gifting occurs the moment we are immersed into the spirit, the moment we are we are made to taste of the spirit. And so we place gifting as a component that happens instantaneously at conversion with the other elements that occur at conversion, such as regeneration, repentance, faith, justification, adoption, sealing, sanctification, and spirit baptism. All of these things, along with gifting, occur at the same time. If you are in Christ, if you have been truly converted, you have been spiritually enabled. Number two, 
spiritual gifts are determined by God. Not only are they possessed by all true believers, but number two, they're determined by God. Hebrews 12 verse 4 emphasizes this when we, we see the words that the gifts of the Holy Spirit were given according to his own will. In 1 Corinthians 12 verse 11, we read that the, the Spirit has distributed these gifts just as he wills. In verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 12, that God has placed the members in the body just as he desired. In fact, we, we see a Trinitarian involvement in the giving of gifts. It, it, it's emphasized in 1 Corinthians 12 verses 4 to 6. There are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries, the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. You have the father who, as we look at the the scriptures, we see that he's the one who plans, who arranges these gifts. You have the son who is the one who accomplishes the redemption and gives gifts to men. And then you have the Holy Spirit being the one who applies the accomplishments of the son to every individual member of the body of Christ. Number three, spiritual gifts are undeserved. Spiritual gifts are undeserved. That's why Paul uses the term charis and the term charisma when he refers to these spiritual abilities. He emphasizes the unmerited favor, the fact that these abilities have been graciously given. Romans 12 verse 6 says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, or Ephesians 4 verse 7, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Spiritual gifts are like the gift of salvation and, and like the gift of the Spirit himself. They are undeserved. They're unmerited. They're, 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 they're given to us not because we're better than others or worse than others. They are given to us as an act of pure grace. And it's so important to realize that. These spiritual ability are not ours. They're not something that we have obtained, that we have deserved. You know, it's often the case that we begin to take pride in our spiritual achievements and what this principle of of, uh, this theology of spiritual gifts emphasizes is that they don't belong to us as if we merited them. They are given to us undeservedly. And no matter what gifting you have, it is all a work of grace that you do not deserve. Number four, spiritual gifts vary among believers. And it's, as I said already, no two gift lists in the New Testament are alike. And and that suggests that there may be even more gifts that are not described. And it's important for us to to notice that it's not really about identifying our gifts. It's about using uh, the abilities that God gives us and are revealed to us through providence. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 4 to six says that there are varieties, 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 varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, varieties of effects. And Paul's favorite analogy to describe the local church is to use this analogy of the human body with its complexity of organs, with its different members, and how every part of the body is necessary to the rest of the body. 
First Corinthians 12 verse 12 says, even as the body is one and yet has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one. So also is Christ. The same idea is in verse 14 and then again in verses 18 to 20 and, and so on and so forth. So what is the importance of this emphasis on the diversity of the gifts, these variations? Let me give you just a few that come through as we study the scriptures. Number one, this emphasis on diversity that every believer has a different gifting. Number one, it increases our awareness of our interdependency. I cannot be a lone ranger Christian. I do not have all the gifts necessary. Number two, it, it, it grows our respect for every member of the church. That when you enter your, your local church assembly, when you think of that membership, you see that everyone has something given by God to contribute to the body. And that increases our respect. There's no one who does not belong. Number three, it boosts our awareness that we are needed. Sometimes we're like Paul says, we think, well, I'm the foot. What good am I? And Paul emphasizes this diversity to show whether you're a foot or a hand, an eye or an ear, you are needed for the health and development and maturation of the body. Number four, this emphasis on diversity motivates us to participate in church life, knowing that we have something unique that is not present among the others. Fifth, It mortifies our assumptions of self-importance. When we begin to think that it's our gift that is needed by the church more than any other, but Paul's emphasis on diversity mortifies that self-importance. It tells us, hey, you are only as needed as the next person. Number six, it cultivates our unity. This emphasis on diversity is intended to cultivate this unity as we recognize that all the members of our local church are one body. It functions or is to function as one organism. And finally, it showcases God's wisdom and his power. Number five, spiritual gifts are designed to benefit the church. Now, this is very important, especially in the confusion that exists today as many Christians talk about exercising their spiritual gifts in prayer closets. That is not the design of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, as Paul makes, uh, as Paul emphasizes in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, they are designed to benefit others. Even 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7 says this, to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Then in chapter 14, verse 12, he talks about these gifts given for the edification of the church. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, he says, let all things be done for edification. That is an absolute statement. You see, gifts are always others oriented and not for self edification, not for self exercise, not for self promotion. And that is why right in the middle of 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, you have this climax, this Mount Everest of texts in 1 Corinthians 13, which emphasizes love. That 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are meaningless apart from this central idea of love, which is sacrificial and always others-oriented. You see, if what you do, if what you claim as a spiritual ability doesn't have a direct 
effect, a direct role to play on the growth, on the health, and on the unity of the church, you cannot say that that spiritual ability is a spiritual gift. Let me say that again. If what you claim is a spiritual gift does not contribute to the growth, the health, and the unity of your local church, that is not a spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts were always designed for the building up of the body of Christ. J.I. Packer makes an important observation when he says this, quote, you cannot define a charisma, a spiritual gift, as performance alone. In other words, as just doing it regardless of who's there. The definition must include the relational factor of God-given edification in Christ through that performance. Where, there, where this is lacking, a supposed gift will be a carnal rather than a spiritual manifestation, even though its form may correspond to a genuine manifestation of the Spirit in someone else. What constitutes and identifies a charisma a spiritual gift is not the form of the action, but the blessing of God, end quote. In other words, you must recognize that just performing some spiritual activity doesn't mean it's a spiritual gift. You must perform that spiritual ability for the blessing, for the good of others. Then you can categorize it and begin to think of it as a spiritual gifting. Number six, spiritual gifts are not to be squandered. Spiritual gifting brings a serious responsibility to all Christians and an obligation on the part of every believer. First Peter four, verse 10 defines us as stewards of the manifold grace of God. Every Christian with his or her unique gifting is needed for the local church to function and, and grow properly. And that is emphasized. You could look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 to 16. Every believer is needed, and therefore you have an obligation not to squander the spiritual enablements that have been given to you. And so the question is, what is your enablement? How are you contributing to the growth, the health, and the unity of your local church? Now, one popular way to define that is to look at at these spiritual gift tests. And, and I would just say this, avoid those spiritual gift tests. Most of the time, they're just plain corny, and often they're just artificial and have more to do with the psychological test than they do with anything related to Scripture. Avoid the spiritual gift tests. Don't pay that money online to, to go through some psychological test. You don't need that. Rather, the best way, as MacArthur and Mayhew state, To discover one's spiritual giftedness is by engaging in ministry according to one's God-given desires, his opportunities to serve, and the response of those served. I'd like to actually give you four or five simple steps here about how how you can discern where your gifting lies. Number one, look for areas in the church where there are needs. Step up and offer your help. Be proactive in that. Go and look for areas where there is a need and consider the fact that perhaps you are the one to fill that need. Seek out those needs according to where they exist already in the church. Number two, 
inquire of opportunities to serve in those areas where you are interested. Perhaps there's nothing that's, a, that, that's noted by your church leadership of, of a need that exists right now. Then, then take the proactive step and, and go and ask about ministries that may exist at some point in the future or the leadership could help you design based on your interest. But as you do that, remember to be patient and teachable. Number three, Listen to the counsel of mature believers, to those who have already been practicing their spiritual gifting for a lengthy period of time. You want to move in the direction of that affirmation where those mature believers say to you, hey, you're doing a great job here. Move in that direction and avoid that idea where you'll just move in the direction regardless of what anyone says because you're just convinced that that's where you need to go. That's foolish. Listen to the affirmation of mature believers. Number four, improve your service through study and practice. Don't just remain at the same level. Do what you can to improve and make your progress in that gifting known to others. Perhaps it means taking some, some study courses, some training, some, some extra uh, reading on how to serve better, how to exposit the scriptures better, how to counsel and discipleship and evangelize better, and then put that to practice and learn through that. And finally, number five, remember that your giftedness is not about you, but it's about the health and the growth of your church. It is not about you. It is about the growth and health of your church. Number seven, spiritual gifts are not equal to spiritual character. This is a very important one. Spiritual gifts are not equal to spiritual character. Don't put the two on par with one another. First Corinthians 13, one to three says this. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and surrender my body to be burned and I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Jesus even warned that no amount of extraordinary religious achievements can ever substitute for knowing and loving him. Just look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, when he says to those who have done miracles and cast out demons, he says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Do not convince yourself that spiritual enablements and abilities are on the same level as spiritual character. Again, quoting from Jonathan Edwards, he said this, though these extraordinary gifts, he's speaking again of those miraculous gifts, those revelatory and confirmatory gifts, though these extraordinary gifts are a great privilege, the ordinary influence of the Spirit of God working the grace of charity in the heart is a far more excellent privilege than any of those extraordinary gifts. A greater blessing than the spirit of prophecy or the gift of tongues or miracles, even to the removing of mountains. A greater blessing than all those miraculous gifts that Moses and Elijah and David with the 12 apostles were endowed with. The spiritual image of God does not consist in having a power to work miracles and foretell future events, but it consists in being holy as God is holy. In having a holy and divine principle in the heart, influencing us to holy and heavenly lives. 
He goes on to say that being meek and lowly of heart and full of Christian love makes a man more like Christ than if he could work ever so many miracles, end quote. Remember that. What is most important is not the identification of your spiritual gifts and the promotion of your spiritual gifts. What is most important in your life is that you know Christ and that knowledge of Christ impacts your life and transforms it into the image of Christ. Finally, number eight, spiritual gifts are given to glorify God. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 4 verse 11, when after he talks about the category of speaking gifts and service gifts, he says, all these things have been given so that God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. So that God may be glorified. The ultimate intention in our stewardship of these gifts must always be to make much of God and what he has done for us. It is never about making much of ourselves and what we do for God. And if that's your view of spiritual gifts, you are in error. If that's your view of spiritual gifts, that that it's about you and about making much of what you do for God, you've got it all wrong. And I exhort you to return to the scriptures and to see that God has given you this life of the spirit, these spiritual enablements, this ability to partner with him in the work of redemption through manifold various gifts. He's given that to you so that you would make much of his glory, so that you would make much of his worthiness. And that would be on display in the church around us and in the watching world. And that is why these spiritual gifts exist. Let's pray towards that end. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together in light of this survey, we are brought to this final moment when we see once again that everything exists for you and through you and to you. And so when we study this issue, we ask for your understanding of the revelation that you have given so that we might practice these things in our life, that we might steward these things as as you have so designed for the benefit of others and for your glory. And we ask this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and by the power of the Spirit whom you have given to us, Amen.